Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. People of the internet, welcome to Modern Day Debate. Tonight we are debating, is radiometric dating reliable? And we are starting right now. So I am the host of, Ka- I am Kaz, host of Atheist Edge. Tonight we are joined by King Crocoduck and he is facing David McQueen. And we are also joined by Donnie of Standing for Truth Ministries. He's going to be joining me and sharing the moderation duties tonight as he has graciously helped to put this whole thing together. And tonight each person will be getting 12 minutes of opening statements. Uh, Eight-minute rebuttals. We're then going to take a five-minute break where I will go through the whole spiel. A 40-minute open discussion and then five-minute closing uh, arguments. And then we will take Q&A. So I believe King Crocoduck will be going first. And King Crocoduck, at your first word, I will start the timer. All right. Give me one sec. And we're going to be sharing the screen. All right. I will say when. Just give me a moment. Can you uh, can you see the slide? Is it full screen? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not full screen, but we can see it. It's not full screen. On my end. Uh. Hmm. Uh, Casey, if, if you click slideshow up around the uh, fifth or sixth button. If you click from first slide or from current slide, it should make it full screen for you if you want to try. I did F5. Uh, normally does it. Give me a sec. Uh, sorry, everyone. I've got my notebook out, King, to make notes about what you say. Good. No worries. While he's doing that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, oh, wait a minute. We might have it. All right, we can see it. Is it going to uh-huh. be full screen? I, I put uh, slideshow on. Is it? We uh, can see the slides. We just can't see them in full screen. If that's Casey, yeah. if you were to click from beginning over there in the top left-hand corner, let's see if that works. Yeah, I did. Oh, you did. Yeah. Um, and it's not showing up full screen. That's kind of odd. I guess that's just if a limitation. You, if you click in the bottom right corner where the uh, the uh, show slideshow button is. Uh, I don't know if that might help. I think I might know what the issue is. You could zoom in like that. But when you uh, shared screen, Casey, did mm-hmm. you click um, entire screen or did you just click one window? I clicked uh, one, win- one window. Yeah, I, I think typically if you click one window, it'll, um, for some reason, not allow you to go full screen. I'm not sure why, but I've experienced that in the past. Okay. In that case, let's uh, do this um, and do a slideshow. All right. All right. Are we good? There we go. Yes, full screen. Perfect. There we go. All right. Go ahead and start the clock. All right. Okay. And so, <laughs> so my argument for the reliability of radiometric dating rests upon three points. Um, First, the fact that decay rates are derivable from fundamental physics. Second, that results are independently reproduced via a plurality of dating techniques across a wide range of space and time. 
And third, the fact that anomalous results are so sparse relative to the volume of consistent results that even if we couldn't explain the anomalies, we'd still be justified in using radiometric dating. So starting with number one, uh, geochronology rests upon the phenomenon of radioactive decay, where certain types of atoms spontaneously transform from one isotope to another. There are a bunch of dynamic variables associated with each individual decay event, including, most importantly to this discussion, the exact point in time when a particular decay event will occur. Radioactive decay, being cast in terms of fundamental particles, is beholden to quantum theory, which expresses these kinds of results probabilistically. Consequently, we can't predict exactly when and how a particular atom will decay. What we can predict are the likelihoods of decay events, and we can therefore give point estimates for things like the average rate of decay across large numbers of radioactive atoms. And that's exactly what the gamma theory of alpha decay does, pictured on the screen. Um, derived by George Gamow in 1928, this was the first successful application of quantum mechanics to nuclear physics. You can use it to accurately predict the average lifetimes of spherically symmetric radioisotopes that undergo alpha decay. For isotopes that don't obey the spherical symmetry that Gamow assumed when he derived his equations, you can apply the relevant corrections to get the right answer. And in the time since Gamow published his results, other physicists have developed even better formulations for the fundamental physics of alpha decay, as well as other types of decay. Now, the ability for radioactive decay rates to be accurately predicted by quantum physics is important because before anyone even enters a laboratory to empirically measure decay rates, it's already possible to know what the decay rate for a particular radioisotope is going to be just by knowing certain things about that isotope, like its atomic number, and fundamental constants like the charge of electrons. So here's my first challenge to creationists. If radiometric dating is unreliable, then why are we able to calculate the decay rates of radioisotopes from first principles in fundamental physics? The same physics that makes predictions that have been validated to 10 decimal places, the same physics that's responsible for the existence of digital technology, and thus the world we live in today, is the exact same physics that tells us that when the building blocks of nature are organized into atoms with such and such properties, they're going to take such and such amount of time to decay. And then those predictions end up agreeing spectacularly with measurement, leading us to conclude that the Earth is billions of years old. My question is, why? Okay, moving on to point number two. Um, radiometric sorry, radiometric dating consists of a plurality of techniques across many different radioisotopes, all with unique parent-daughter ratios and decay rates. Published results consistently converge on the same conclusions using different methods over and over and over again. Uh, for example, the geologist uh, Gary Dalrymple made the table on the left, summarizing the results from research he led in 1993 when he sent tektite samples to different laboratories in Australia, Canada, France, and California. These facilities independently radiometrically dated the samples via a variety of techniques, including argon-argon, potassium-argon, rubidium-strontium, and uranium-lead. Uh, the results, as summarized by the table, clearly converge upon the same tight spread of values on the order of about 65 million years. And you can find a bunch of other tables throughout the geochronological literature like this. The table on the right is another one by Dalrymple, this time summarizing his 1991 paper in which chondrite meteorites were independently dated at laboratories in Germany, the UK, France, California, Minnesota, Missouri, and Denver, and with a bunch of different techniques um, that once again converge on the same result, this time of about four and a half billion years. These kinds of tables also exist for cross comparisons between radiometric dating and other techniques, including tree ring dating, ice core dating, and various types of luminescence dating. You get the picture. So here's my second challenge to creationists. If radiometric dating is unreliable, then why do scientific publications consistently report the same results across different techniques, labs, and even decades? 
Here's a table published by Bouvier et al. Um, 15 years after Dalrymple's chondrite publication, where they dated a bunch of different chondrites from all around the globe, and their results still match Dalrymple's from the previous decade. They also got about four and a half billion. Why? Why are these results so consistent with each other? Uh, before I go on, could I please get a notification of how much time I have left? I can't really see that screen right now. You've got uh, about seven, seven minutes and 23 seconds. All right, perfect. So uh, here comes my third and final challenge to creationists. And this one is a little bit more philosophical. So consider the image on the left. This is a mammographic image. It's an x-ray of a woman's breast. And I'm very sorry, modern day debates looks like you're going to be demonetized. Um, according to a recent study from UC Davis, about half the women who get screened for breast cancer will, over the course of 10 years, get at least one false positive. This is one such example. Now, to a radiologist, these uh, little white dots over here, they can look a lot like calcifications, which can potentially lead to a misdiagnosis and perhaps even unnecessary medical intervention, like surgery followed up by radiation therapy. But in reality, these little dots are just imaging artifacts, and they can come from a lot of different sources that are not related to cancer. They can come from dust getting into the mammogram's filters. They can come from dead pixel elements in the mammogram's detector. They can come from traces of zinc and other metals in tattoos or powders or deodorants. The, the, the list goes on. Um, this kind of thing is not limited to mammography. All diagnostic, all, all diagnostic imaging modalities can produce bad results under certain conditions. Um, so given this fact, is it reasonable to dismiss medical imaging as unreliable and stop giving people x-rays and MRIs? Uh, should we stop screening high-risk women for breast cancer? Should we stop sending trauma patients and confused old people who walk into the emergency room with half their faces sagging into CT scanners where they're going to have loads of radiation dumped into their bodies and possibly get suboptimal images that might potentially lead to misdiagnoses? And the answer, I think, is very obviously no. The occasional presence of anomalies is not a compelling reason to abandon a measurement technique, yet this is exactly the kind of silly reasoning creationists will routinely apply to radiometric dating. The creationist case against radiometric dating typically rests upon a laundry list of a dozen or so anomalies in which it's asserted that radiometric dating has failed. Now, those of us who have been debunking creationism for many years can pretend to be ignorant and naive. We can pretend not to know that the living mollusk shells and the recently killed seals that Kent Hovind likes to point to have been subject to the reservoir effect. We can pretend not to know that the Velocevich mammoth that Eric Hovind likes to point to did not, as he claims, have two different parts of its body dated differently, but was in fact two entirely different mammoths. We can pretend to be ignorant of the Xenocrists contaminating Steve Austin's Mount St. Helens samples. We can pretend to be ignorant of the fact that Andrew Snelling's quote-unquote wood, pictured here, which was almost certainly an iron concretion, was porous from groundwater contamination. We can pretend to be ignorant of the memory artifacts that arise from the submission of inappropriate samples to places like Geochron Labs, and on and on and on and on. In short, let's come to this conversation with the naive supposition that creationists don't have a well-documented track record of either misreporting the results of radiometric dating, omitting the context when sharing scientific literature that identifies limitations of certain dating techniques, or just outright misapplying dating methods in a way that are well understood in the literature. Let's be absolute chumps for a minute and just take the dozen or so examples that they've been peddling for the past three decades completely at face value. What inference should we draw from this? Have these anomalies falsified radiometric dating? If you're very naive and very ideologically motivated, then yes, they have. Congratulations, debate's over. David wins. But if you have at least a couple of brain cells to rub together, then think back to what I said about medical imaging. 
I very much doubt that the ridiculous standard that they apply to radiometric dating, where occasional bad results supposedly disprove the entire enterprise, are equally applied to medical diagnostics. So why do they adopt this kind of attitude towards radiometric dating? This is a rhetorical question. We already know why, but putting that off to one side, in medical imaging, if you get a bad result, the, re the reasons for this are usually obvious to the trained eye. And so it is for radiometric dating. But even if we were naive and didn't know the reasons for these kinds of failures, with the presence of the dozen or so examples from the laundry list of anomalies that creationists have been peddling for the past 30 years be sufficient to disqualify radiometric dating, given the literal thousands of independently reproduced results that have accumulated over the same period. And this is without even mentioning the fact that you'd need to revise fundamental physics to justify this kind of move. So that's my third challenge to the creationist. Please explain why you think a handful of anomalous results poses a serious challenge to the thousands of consistent results reported in the literature. Okay, so to recap, um, decay rates are derivable from our most predictively precise theories in fundamental physics. The results of radiometric dating are independently reproduced via a plurality of dating techniques across a wide range of space and time. And the small handful of anomalies that creationists like to point to are so overwhelmingly outweighed by consistent results that even if we didn't have plausible explanations for these anomalies, we would still be justified in treating radiometric dating as being reliable. Okay, that's my opening statement. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much, uh, King Crocoduck, for that 12-minute opening statement. We are now moving into uh, David McQueen. You've got your 12-minute opening statement whenever you're ready. The floor is all yours. And when you need to uh, share your PowerPoint slides, let us know and I can get those going as well. And just make sure to unmute yourself, uh, Professor McQueen, or unless Kaz can do that on his end. The unmute. Whoops. King, I want to thank you very much for uh, your willingness to debate this important topic. I know that you have debated a number of people on standing for truth. And I begin that to you as a compliment. From 1983 to 1987, I was a full-time flood geologist for the Institute for Creation Research in California. <clears throat> My boss at that time was Dr. Henry Morris. And if you can see behind me here on my board, he spoke a lot about dating and his 1961 book and other uh, all through his life as he debated. And he taught me to uh, divide my debate into two parts. First, a uh, part where I'm thankful for the parts of uh, King Crocoduck's presentation. And then to transition to the argumentative side. And so I want to transition now. Donnie, pull up my slideshow, please. Our choice tonight, King, is do we prefer radiometric dating or dating redheads? I appreciate your comments about mammography because over the 50 years of our marriage. I have been married to a redhead. Next. Next slide. Not anyone in this picture, but nonetheless a redhead. Next.
my atheist opponent, so he claims, doesn't understand the value of the three problems that affect all dating methods. Potassium argon, uranium, uranium lead, whatever. First problem is unknown original conditions. It's a good time to comment that I was trained at the University of Tennessee with a degree in geology in 1974, and then at the University of Michigan with a master's degree in economic geology in 1979. I hope the audience will notice that I only go to schools that have good football teams, so that's good to know, isn't it? The second problem is a problem of leaching and deposition. And as a geologist, I'm certainly well qualified to uh, comment on this. And then thirdly, in uh, the period from around 1972 to 1975, I was Bob Gentry's lab assistant at the very famous Oak Ridge National Labs. And he has a very clear critique of the first uh, slide that King put up next. Does my, does my opponent understand history? What about history? How can we understand people and events? Next. Here is a very nice piece of granite. Uh, if your slide is, if your screen is clear enough, you'll see black biotite and white feldspar. You'll also see some feldspar in there that's called orthoclase feldspar. And then the clear is quartz. Bob Gentry had a challenge to Dalrymple. He certainly express, expressed this challenge to Professor Dalrymple at the uh, Arkansas Creation Evolution debate. I'm sorry, the Arkansas Creation Evolution trial in uh, the early 80s. And he said, well, if what you say is true, Dalrymple, uh, produce for me a fist-sized fist granite and uh you know i'll get i'll stop writing papers to science and nature next how king can we know the initial amounts of uranium thorium potassium argon rubidium and on and on and on my first debate about this issue of creation evolution was in my high school days in the late 60s. And then as I got my degree and worked for Gentry, I understood that this issue of the initial amounts of uh, radioactive elements, U-238 and its decay chain, that's a non-trivial matter. Next. Excellent book I'd recommend to you, King, is by Vernon Cups came out in 2019, he uses a different argument. He calls it closed system assumption. And notice what he says. So critical to all radiometric dating methods is this closed system assumption. And notice the comment. It strains credibility 
when applied over millions of years. Now, why would that be? Next. This is a rock hammer there for scale in a uh, very interesting unit that we can come back to later on. But you see the brown color king? That's uh, either leaching or hydrothermal additions. And so as I have gone in the field since the early 70s, I've routinely seen, as an economic geologist, this kind of alteration. It's either by leaching or, as you see close to the large white area in the middle, by hydrothermal additions. Next. And now we come to this reference. I would encourage everyone viewing this channel to write this down. Gentry, my old boss in 1974, wrote an article in Science. Now, was this in a Sunday school paper? No. Was this in an internal creationist thing? No. This was a peer-reviewed science article. There's the volume number and the page number. And here we see a picture of radioactive halos. Now, I was working for Gentry during this time. Next. And here's a uranium halo in mica. And Gentry's favorite example is, imagine you drop an Alka-Seltzer into a glass, and then as the effervescence proceeds, you freeze it immediately. Remember that I am arguing for a 6,000-year-old universe in Earth, and I'm arguing that the uh, days of creation were literal consecutive 24-hour days. Now, I want to challenge or respond to, if you will, um, what the king has to say about Gentry's work. So would you give the screen back to me, Donnie, please? Okay, let me put this up on my whiteboard here. And here's a direct critique of what was said. Um, Kaz, is that visible to you, the Gentry reference 16? Can you read that? Um, barely, but I can make you bigger. One second. Uh, there you go. That looks is good. That, is that better, Kaz? Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Now... I challenge what King said. Let me get my notes out. Uh, you know, he's he's uh, quoting references that go back to Gamov about alpha decay. And he's using this Dalrymple argument, which he's used for years, about cross-contamination. And his references of 1991, 1993, are contemporary with, um, I'm sorry, are later than Gentry's original article, but misses a very important point. I'm sure Crocoduck understands from the calculus that he showed that the alpha decay theory revolves around the differential equation uh, 
the differential rather d lambda over lambda where lambda is the rate of decay how much time do i have left please got about a minute and 53 seconds left okay good i would argue that king has misunderstood dr over r plus d lowercase r over r it turns out this is the the large r is the atomic radius the lowercase r is what gentry taught me to measure in those radioactive decay rates in those radioactive halos and that's the radius of that halo well it turns out if you give the evolutionary community every benefit of the doubt there's still a 35 percent error in this uh, decay rate but in contrast if you look at this particular footnote um if you take creationist assumptions got about a minute left which he which he got through peer review i might add uh there is actually no proof of uh the constancy of lambda lambda through geologic time now you have to understand that the data that Gentry had came from biotites and fluorites worldwide. How would you answer that, King? Okay. That concludes the 12-minute opening statements. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for the visuals and lots of interesting uh, points to discuss. So we're now moving into the uh, round of rebuttals. We've got, uh, to be exact, eight-minute rebuttals. And so we're going to hand it over to uh, King Crocoduck. We'll make sure Kaz gives you a one-minute warning when you reach the seven-minute mark. And whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. Okay. Well, thank you, David McQueen, for uh, your opening statement. Uh, I just want to uh, correct a potential misunderstanding. I don't believe I mentioned cross-contamination when I discovered uh, Gamma's derivation. Um, that equation... Um, or the set of equations that he came out with are the result of the application of something called the WKB approximation um, to a certain effect in quantum mechanics called quantum tunneling. Um, what um, the fellow you were working for, I'm afraid his name escapes me, uh, the one who, who published these papers, um, what he ended up doing, it seems, is he applied uh, this, uh, he, he empirically measured the polonium halos, halos and he made an effort to um, express the relationship between the radii of these halos and something related to the decay rates. Um, and of course, since, the, since you're, you have variance in the radii of, of, of these halos, um, you know, his suggestion is that therefore the decay rates are varying. Um, th this is problematic for a number of reasons. Number one, um, the, um, th these, these apparent uh, polonium halos uh, they they don't necessarily issue from uh, sorry was it Gentry was Gentry his name they don't they don't necessarily issue from uh, what he's suggesting um, the more parsimonious explanation uh, is that radon gas is leaking through the rocks and that the radon gas um, decays into the uh, which we call it sorry give me one second here just want to check my notes. Uh, my fingers. 
Uh, I'll get back to it, but but basically the answer is radon gas. Um, we'll we'll probably talk about it in greater detail during the discussion part. I want to I want to get to everything else in the meantime. Um, how can we know the initial amounts of uranium? Um, so David brought up the question of you know if we don't know the the original, how do we know the original conditions that lead to radioactive decay? Well, um, first of all, the raw num the raw amounts of parent and daughter elements um, those aren't quite as important as the ratios. Um, so, you know, whatever amount of initial parent material there is over a given volume, that's, that's really neither here nor there. Um, it's, it's the ratio of that to the daughter element. And in the case of something like a zircon crystal, uh, where you are looking at the ratio of uranium to lead, um, the, the zircon, it, it, it's not possible um, for, during the formation of these crystals for lead to be introduced into the structure. Um, so you can be reasonably certain that, that whatever lead you end up finding there um, that's 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 the product of uranium decaying into lead, uh, not the result of lead subsequently contaminating or or lead somehow working its way into the crystal. You you, you the, the 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 structure uh, of the crystal it it can't form with lead already in it. Uh, the condensed matter physics just don't allow it. Um, concerning the leaching and deposition, um, so in the Dalrymple samples that I cited, um, and I noticed in the paper that he soaked initially his samples in hydrofluoric acid. Um, I am not a geologist, so I'm not entirely familiar with how they treat their samples um, prior to sending them out for analysis. Um, but as, as far as I can tell, they, they disqualify um, or they treat it to the extent that they're able to um, whatever items, uh, whatever minerals or whatever rocks they're, they're looking at, they treat those or they disqualify those on the basis of certain features that they have. Um, so I think that that begins to address, but I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure uh, whether David's going to find that convincing. So that's, that's probably something also for further discussion. Um, let me see my notes here. Uh, polonium halos, uh, initial amounts. Uh, one second. King, you're making me cry with your argument, so let me uh, wipe my eyes here. Give me a second here. Um, yeah, so one of the decay products of uranium is radon. Uh, radon is a gas, so it can migrate through small cracks in the materials. And uh, polonium halos, halos are only found associated with uranium, uh, which is the parent mineral for the production of radon. Um, moreover, polonium halos are typically found along cracks. So the, the more parsimonious explanation um, for the existence of these halos and for, for their varying radii is not that decay rates are contrary to what we see in fundamental physics and contrary to what I've shown in, in those tables. Uh, it's not that they're varying wildly all over the place. It's, it's just that um, uh, the radon is, is producing this. Uh, radon is, is decaying into polonium. Um, and let's see, how much time do we have left? Three minutes. Okay, well, I guess, I guess it's worthwhile to talk a little bit about some of the consequences of accelerating decay rates to the extent necessary. Um, to produce uh, to produce the results that are conciliant with the creationist account, and that is that you're going to end up sterilizing the entire Earth with the amount of radiation that you're producing. Um, you're taking 
uh, 4.6 billion years of geological history and compressing it into 6,000 years. Um, so you're going to have this outflux of lethal ionizing radiation that's going to irradiate everything on the planet and just kill it. Um, you, you get these kinds of silly results uh, when you start messing around with the laws of physics and you start messing around with this or that fundamental constant. I mean, you, you know, not even looking at the physics of it, not even looking at Gamow's equation, like, like, let's say you wanted to change the charge of the electron to make this process feasible, right? Um, so you change the charge of the electron vastly to whatever hundreds of thousands of, um, of orders of magnitude necessary to produce the creationist answer. And now you end up with a situation where stable atomic nuclei can no longer form. Um, the structure of the universe literally just, just, just becomes kaput. So depending on how you approach this problem, whether you decide to tinker with fundamental constants or whether you decide to uh, just make it decay faster and then you have this outflux of lethal ionizing radiation that sterilizes everything on the planet, it doesn't seem to me that anything fruitful comes of it. It seems to me that the most parsimonious explanation for these things um, is just the known physics, and we don't have to invent any new physics to explain this. Okay, so I think uh, I'll see the remainder of my time. Okay, thank you so much uh, there, King Crocoduck, for your eight-minute rebuttal. Uh, David McQueen, we're now going to hand it over to you for your eight-minute rebuttal. If you need to um, look to your whiteboard there, we can certainly pull you, uh, put you full screen as well for the audience's sake. And whenever you're ready, uh, eight minutes, we'll give you a one-minute warning at the seven-minute mark, and go ahead. Okay, let's go ahead and make me uh, full screen here. Um, as a professional scientist, I don't appreciate you referring to what I think as being silly, and especially what Dr. Baumgartner and Dr. Andrew Stelling, two colleagues of mine for many years, to characterize their information as silly. So where to begin with the mistakes you've made? Well, let's start Let's start with uh, polonium. Many of you that are watching may not remember your high school chemistry. We're not talking about plutonium here. We're talking about the element polonium revolving around polonium uh, 210. The argument that Gentry put forward, and that I think after my 30 years of study of this, as the years have gone on, uh, is a point very well taken. Some of these polonium isotopes have very short half-lives, as a matter of fact, less than three minutes. And this is why Gentry loved this Alka-Seltzer in water example, where the, uh, there was a rapid um, crystallization of the granites. Now, I appreciate King's comments about not being a geologist. So he may not know about a uh, process that uh, is called eutectic crystallization. And later on, I'll spell this out better, but eutectic crystallization on a phase diagram. At the University of Michigan, I had to suffer through a semester of physical chemistry. It was so bad at Michigan, so hard, that there were bumper stickers that said, Honk if you pass Pekin. So sadly, I actually do know what I'm talking about about this. It was very, very difficult uh, uh, class. 
But on a phase diagram, this point here is called the eutectic. Now, what does that mean? The eutectic means that a mineral like biotite or a mineral like fluorite, two of the minerals that radioactive halos are found in, when you reach that eutectic point of pressure and temperature, they immediately crystallize. And so there's nothing uh, magical about the rapid crystallization of things like polonium-210. But now let's not miss the, the point. Uh, as Gentry wrote his uh, papers for nature and science, these were peer-reviewed peer papers. You know, he went he went back to his background as a Seventh-day Adventist, and he looked back, and when, when Genesis records that uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and then on the third day there were uh, additional rocks formed, he viewed that as happening very quickly. So from my viewpoint as a Christian, King's name should be spelled lowercase k-i-n-g. As an atheist, he views, he, he views himself as being king of a certain domain, I guess you would say. Um, but he's not the true king of the universe, capital k-i-n-g, and that's the king, Lord Jesus. He's the one that uh, created everything. And so Gentry would put in his papers uh, comments like, um, what was the word he liked to use? He would use the word providence as a substitute for God, I guess. And um, he would talk about changing the paradigm of nuclear physics. Very, very important point. But let me go on to other things he said. Um, it is true, and I acknowledge, I've never actually done it. Why? There are probably only 15 labs in all of America and another 30 labs worldwide that do, that do radiometric dating. I did field work in Zimbabwe, Africa, the old Rhodesia, in 2019. And I was a visiting professor at the University of Zimbabwe. And I spoke to the lady that uh, was the chairman of the department to get her radiometric dates done. She had to go to South Africa to get them done. So there, it's a it's a very closed circle. It's like a uh, it's like a cult. It's like uh, the Masonic order or the uh, the Illuminati or something like that. Are the people? Again, there, there are probably less than 200 people that actually understand how you take a granite and uh, use hydrochloric acid, begin to dissolve everything out. And then notice the words that King used, lowercase king. Um, he said that Dalrymple chose from those hydrochloric acid etched zircons, the ones he thought would be best. Oh, really? Um, one of the arguments that King has made throughout this debate is that the zircons in which Gentry found 
the samples in. Do keep in mind that when I worked for Gentry uh, in the early 70s, he taught me actually how to make these measurements. And so I have actually, with my own eyes, looked down a microscope and seen a halo. And my goal, Gentry gave me, was to use grit to get right down to where the zircon was. And that gives you a true diameter. But what's my point? My opponent has argued that there are always cracks and somehow the radon gas gets in and some left. One minute left. Thank you. But in my own observation, let me use another color, looking in biotites, which are silicates, phyllosilicates, in fluorites from pegmatites around the world. When I actually did this, all those nights that I worked for him part-time, I saw no cracks coming through. When I did my sections, and when he did his sections, which are part of this 1974 paper that I've referred to, he didn't use uranium halos or polonium halos near cracks. And so that counter-argument is simply not true, King. Back to you, moderators. Okay, gentlemen. That concludes both the opening statements and rebuttals. Great technical debate so far. I appreciate the work you've both put into this. Now, before we get into everybody's favorite part of the debate, the 40-minute discussion portion, lots of uh, excellent points to discuss between uh, Professor McQueen and King Crocoduck. We're going to have uh, Kaz here. He's going to uh, give us the honors of going over a few announcements and, and reminders. All right. Thank you so much, Donnie. I really appreciate it. So I just want to let everybody know, especially if it's your first time here joining us on Modern Day Debate, that we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics, and we want you to feel welcome no matter what walk of life you're from. And if you have a question or a comment for one of tonight's debaters, fire it into the old live chat and be sure to tag me at Modern Day Debate. <clears throat> Super chats will go to the top of the list and they will get priority. All we ask is that you keep it civil. Attack the argument and not the person. Insults will not be read. And that goes for the general discourse in the live chat as well. So um, our inv invaluable moderators are keeping an eye on the live chat. So if you uh, are disrespectful, if you are spreading hate speech, you will be kicked or banned. So please be sure to keep it civil. Our guests are linked in the description below, whether you're listening on YouTube or via the podcast. So if you like what you're hearing, be sure to click those links. Check them out right now. Hit the subscribe button because we have plenty more live debates coming your way. Much more juicy stuff for you to ingest. In fact, uh, tomorrow, I believe, uh, we have uh, Matt Dillahunty is going to be debating David on whether or not gambling should be illegal and that's going to be at 7 p.m eastern so again please subscribe if you like debates like i do and i just want to also mention that debate con 2 is scheduled for saturday november 19th in plano texas i hope you guys can all see that uh it's going to be 
The tickets are on sale now, and that is linked in the description below. There is a crowdfund to help get this all taken care of. So please, if you love debates, if you can possibly make it, if you just want to help James get this off the ground, then please check out that link in the description. Donate if you can. Get the tickets while they're still hot. You see all those big names right there on the screen, so I know you want to join. I know you want to help out, so go ahead. Check that out right now. And that concludes all of the announcements that I have right now. Uh, if anybody is on the screen right now that would like to uh, mention anything they have going on on their channels, please take the time right now to go ahead and do so. I'll make a comment before Donnie does. Uh, Kaz, it may be interesting to you that my undergraduate minor was political theory. And so maybe I'll have to come back on your channel in the future, not as uh, Professor Giala, Professor McQueen, but rather as someone who has a 40-year uh, interest in political theory. Okay, that sounds great. That would be awesome. We would love to have you. Donnie, do you have anything going on on your channel right now? We have a couple more minutes before we get back into the uh, debate. Well, I appreciate the announcements uh, and reminders there. Kaz, lots to look forward to here on Modern Day Debate. James Coons is doing an excellent job, so make sure if you're not yet subscribed, please hit that subscribe button, hit that like button, and share around uh, this content because critical thinking is incredibly important. So I also host a debate channel, and yes, we've got uh, several... Uh, major events coming up in the world of theology, soteriology, the nature of God, and creation versus evolution. We've been hosting an evolution debate challenge series for 2022. We've done about uh, 50 of them. So this week, uh, we've got the uh, big Clash of the Titans debate uh, coming up on Tuesday. Mark Reed, who's been here several times, and uh, Ken Hoven, they'll be debating, uh, is there reasonable evidence for evolution on Tuesday? And then uh, later on in the week, on Friday, we've got uh, Matt Slick. He'll be debating uh, Jake, the Muslim metaphysician. So both uh, fantastic debaters, very knowledgeable. They'll be debating uh, the nature of God specifically, the Trinity. So if you like debates, uh, like we see here on Modern Day Debate, you can find uh, many more kinds of debates over on my channel as well. So Kaz, thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, uh, Mr. McQueen, you are, you did uh, get your break in. You are good to go for the rest of the debate. Is that correct? Well, uh, ordinarily, Donnie allows me to take a break at the one hour mark. So I'm good until uh, I notice we've been on now about 50 minutes. Can we go another 10? Well, what we were going to do, Professor McQueen, is we were going to uh, allow you to have your five minute break here before we get into the discussion because we didn't oh, want to okay. have. Okay. So what Very we'll do well. is we'll just, um, unless you want to go right into the 40 minute discussion now. Oh, no. I, uh, uh, I noticed that you've given King and I the opportunity for a five minute summary. That'll be at the end of the two hours, right? Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, well, it, it'll be a five-minute summary, a concluding statement right before the audience Q&A. So what we can do oh, okay. is, is right after the discussion, the 40 minutes that we could start now, um, we can do a, a, a bit of a break there if you needed a bathroom break or anything like that. Yeah, please. Uh, if you would drop my video, I'll go get some hot tea and be right back. In the meantime, can we please okay. share my screen in preparation for the, uh, for the discussion? Sure. Thanks. We can do that. No problem. Let's go ahead and do that. I'll just start the timer again sure. and uh, let you have the floor for a moment. Go ahead. 
Oh, uh, I, I wasn't going to. Oh, you just wanted anything. to put it on the screen? Okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> All right. yeah. Well, da da David and I will talk, and I'll, I'll offer some of my opinions as a professional scientist, as one who is currently working in science, uh, on some of the things I do and appreciate about implications of, of conspiracies. So that's, that'll be, I think, the first topic of discussion. And uh, Casey, if you wanted to take some time to go over, uh, you know, what, anything new on your channel, anything going on, what you've been up to, it's up to you. Yeah, I've been super busy, so I haven't been terribly active. Uh, I do monthly Patreon live streams, and uh, some people seem to enjoy those. But I will be getting more into, uh, into the creation of videos where I'll be talking about, uh, well, the, the sort of stuff that I'm putting up on the screen uh, concerning how we can assess the likelihood that people are selectively reporting measurement outcomes in different disciplines. So well, I'll be I'll be doing some meta science moving forward um, and and, you know, keeping up with my, uh, um, you know, my philosophy of science and, and some physics as well. Sounds amazing. I definitely want to check that out Mark, personally. For me uh so again ladies and gentlemen if you do like what you are hearing from our guests they are linked in the description below so please do check those out whether you're listening on youtube or the podcast we are linking them everywhere so please do check them out and i do want to also just once again throw back up on the screen for everybody who didn't see earlier tomorrow's uh debate for matt delahunty will be once again gracing the halls of modern day debate to discuss gambling and whether or not it should be illegal with david and they will be debating that tomorrow and then once again debate con is on for november 19th in plano texas tickets are on sale now get them while they are hot and support james by donating to the crowdfund that is also linked in the description below and you see i, I see uh who's on there r and raw matt dillahunty destiny um Stardust and Daniel Hakikachu, and I'm not sure who else is on there. Sorry. <laughs> Let's see. What's going on in the live chat? Let's see what you guys are talking about. How are we looking on questions, Kaz? We got quite a few coming in. Uh, actually, we could certainly use some more. So if okay. you have questions or comments for our debaters, please fire it to the old live chat once again. And uh, Super Chats will go to the top of the list, have plenty of room on that list. So if you have a question that you are sure you want the debaters to respond to, a Super Chat is a great way to be acknowledged. Well said. Mm -hmm. And with the topic tonight, <clears throat> is radiometric dating reliable? So let's do our best to keep those questions to the topic. And uh, related topics, too, because radiometric dating, of course, applies to the age of the Earth, the global flood. And so whether you got a question for KC or Professor McQueen, uh, the Q&A period is always a great continuation of, of the debate. So I always look forward to uh, that portion of, of these formal debates. Oh, yeah. Let's see who's still in the live chat. I've got... Um, well, I know General Balzac was in there. Shout out to him. Air Church, shout out to you. Who else do I recognize in there? Uh, praise, I am. Shout out to you. Uh, not a lot of familiar names. Looks like we got a solid mix as well. Of, um, Back, gentlemen. Uh, thank you for that break. Have some awesome. sad okay. news. Have some sad oh. news. My coffee machine broke, um, but uh, 
we can go on. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Okay, so we are going to kick it into the open discussion now. Let me yeah. put 40 minutes on the clock, and I'll give it back to you, Donnie. Okay, that's 40 minutes. Uh, gentlemen, let's keep this uh, cordial, on topic, and as I like to say, sophisticated. I'm looking forward to this. We got a lot of uh, excellent points on the table for, uh, for discussion, so we'll keep it as equally timed as possible, of course. We do want to keep it free-flowing and organic. Uh, you know, and, and focusing on one topic at a time. So since David ended with his eight-minute rebuttal, King Crocoduck, we're going to give you the floor to uh, kick us off here in the discussion portion. The floor is yours, gentlemen. Go ahead. Sure. So, David, you uh, mentioned that there were some things that you as, as a scientist didn't appreciate, me saying that there was some silliness going on in creationist accounts of how the world works. Uh, one thing that I also as a professional working scientist don't appreciate is the suggestion of conspiracies taking place without the supplying of evidence to support this. Um, but that's okay because right now we can talk about evidence of conspiracies because believe it or not, this is actually a question that can be addressed. So it seems to me that your suggestion, and you can correct me on this if I'm mistaken, is that this cult of 200 or so people in the world who do the radiometric dating, um, they massage the data in such a fashion as to produce cross confirmations of the sort that you see on the tables in front of you. Is that correct? Well, let's look at it this way, my friend. All of these people have jobs that in the American context are above minimum wage. They are sending children to college on the money they make. And so if on a Wednesday they would get a sample let's say a biotite from South Africa and they would run the numbers on it and the actual age of that biotite would be 6,000 years, they would immediately reject it for two separate reasons. One, their paradigm is like yours. You are an, an old universe, old earth uh, evolutionist yourself. And so they would reject it on the basis of paradigm. But secondly, they would reject it on the basis of they would lose their job. They would have no money for their children to go to college. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not saying that every radiometric dating individual in Australia calls my former chairman at the University of Zimbabwe and says, tell me what lab that you're sending your samples to in South Africa so that I can make sure they're part of this worldwide radiometric conspiracy. No, they don't do that. But I would suggest to you that um, these are the reasons that certain young universe, young earth dates are rejected is because they, they'd lose their job. They'd lose their job within a month. So it's not a top-down conspiracy with some shady individuals sitting in a volcano barking orders at these labs. It's, it's, it's more oh, of a no, bottom-up. No, it's, it's a bottom-up thing from perverse incentive structures is what you're saying. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and I, I've tried to do some research on you, King, and I guess I'm a bit annoyed at you um, for two reasons. One, 
you portray yourself as an atheist. So from my talk to atheists over the last 50 years, that must mean that you've picked up every rock on earth, traveled to every planet, and so you know that God is not hiding under some rock someplace. Correct vocabulary for you, I would think, my friend, would be agnostic. You know, Darwin's bulldog, Huxley, uh, invented the word agnostic. Uh, so I guess I'm troubled that I don't even know your first name. You claim to be. I'm just going to jump in here, uh, David McQueen. I, I want to make sure we're fully utilizing the 40 minute period. So as interesting as a debate would be on atheism versus agnosticism and and other um, you know issues, let's really focus on radiometric dating. Casey, okay. if you'd like to respond to any of that, go ahead, and then we'll allow uh, David to pick the next uh, okay, question. Okay, I've got some topic. other things here. Okay, go ahead, uh, Casey. Okay. Well, if David is correct, and for example, these tables by uh, Dalrymple don't include all the data he collected because he arbitrarily excluded dates that didn't conform to his expectations, then we should be able to find statistical residue left over from that decision. Uh, so I'm going to give you an early Christmas present right now, David, and I'm going to show you how you can actually go about exposing um, the kind of fraud that you're suggesting is taking place. I appreciate. I'm surprised you would even acknowledge Christmas as an atheist, but go ahead. Sure. So I'm going to apply some techniques that are typically reserved for meta-analyses to his data. And I think this move is defensible given that functionally the studies are very similar to meta-analyses in that they involve point estimates for certain properties of large populations of atoms. And these estimates were acquired by different groups of researchers using a variety of different methods. And I think it's also reasonable to treat mean measured ages uh, the same way clinical trials might treat effect sizes because the math is the same. And we can interpret the term effect size to mean something more general in this context, such that we can include single group summaries under that umbrella. Uh, point being, whatever index you choose has no bearing on the computations I'm about to share with you. So what I did was I generated a funnel plot of the standard errors for the measured KT deposit tectite ages against their mean values, along with the results of a, of a regression test to determine the extent to which this plot is asymmetrical. Uh, and as you can see, P is greater than 0.05, so the funnel plot is symmetrical, and the test does not provide evidence for the selective reporting of outcomes. Um, if there was selective reporting of outcomes, at least within that data set, what we would expect to see is that there is a non-negligible relationship between the effect size that they want to get and the standard error associated with that effect size, the effect size in this case just being the, the means, the mean ages that they calculated. Um, so I did the same thing with the data involving the chondrites, and once again, there's, there's no evidence of publication bias. Now, these tests have been around for decades, um, and if you really wanted to, you could, you could do something like this. You could search Google Scholar for papers published over the last 10 years, for example, for uh, potassium argon dating for igneous rocks from the Permian period, and you could perform a meta-analysis of these dates, uh, including tests for publication bias that are even more rigorous and comprehensive than what I've shown here. And you can determine whether the ages arrived at are legit or whether they're just an artifact of selectively reported now, data. You keep saying what I've shown here, but I just see, I don't see anything on the screen. Are you saying that you're sharing a screen that I'm not seeing? Yeah. Is it not showing up? We know. Oh, I, I finally see it. There. It's back up now. Yeah, there it, you go. It looks like it's up now. Oh, well, so, okay. So th this, this was. That's the, okay. You can go on because. I've been statistic to death in my life from
from my Tennessee days. So I do understand what you're saying. Go ahead. Put yeah. That so funnel chart back up. Yes. Yeah. So you can you can apply these these funnel plots. Um, you can you can you can produce a meta analysis. You can you can you know look look for uh, like I was saying potassium argon dating for igneous rocks from the Permian period. Doesn't have to be that. Just look at the you know the past say ten years or so. Get a, get a whole bunch of papers that that produce dates. And you know, perform perform tests for publication bias that are you know even more rigorous than than whatever I've shown here. Whatever I've shown here is just kind of like a first step. Um, but the best part, though, Dave, is you can do this without ever setting foot outside of your house. All you need yeah. is access to the internet, which you seem to have, um, some yeah. open source statistical software, and a means of accessing publications. Boom, yeah. you're set. I'm aware that there's a new open source that is the letter R. Um, an open source statistical package. I'm not sure I'd call R new, but sure, go 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 for R. It's a good I mean, one. Certainly new for me. Um, okay, may I respond uh, uh, to this? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, yeah. Uh, we want to make sure it's 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 free flowing. So yeah, right. Respond so, to each other. Let me uh, pull some data um, on a couple of different things. Uh, George Bond is a name I hope you're familiar with King as uh, one of the uh, co-hosts on Standing for Truth. Uh, He pointed out to me that a 2018 post on physics.org made a a very interesting argument against radiometric dating. The dilution of atomic carbon-14 by volcanic carbon made the dates for tree material from the Taupo eruption appear to be 40 to 300 years too old. Now, that's a small error there, but let's read what it is. T-A-U-P-O, Taupo, is a uh, in New Zealand on the North Island. It's a caldera of a volcano there. It's a very large rhyolith rhyolitic rhyolitic supervolcano. It has produced two of the world's most violent eruptions in geologic recent times. And the last eruption is falsely put in the literature as 250 CE. That really should be BC to honor the true king, King Jesus. But at any rate, um, what do you make of the fact that these uh, values for a eruption that they know is uh, 250 to 250 years BC? What do you make of the fact that it's uh, 300 years too old? The dating, I mean, the 28 um, well, data. You know, like like I said earlier, um, you can find you know a dozen or so. Uh, anomalies in the literature or creationist examples that they like to point to. But at, at the end of the day, even if, if you had no explanation for how any of this could happen, even, even, even if the dozen or so anomalies could not be explained, um, it would still be justified for the same reason mammography is still justified, uh, despite the fact that there are occasionally errors. But I'm not entirely sure what this has to do with my point concerning publication bias and Eggers regression tests and funnel plots. Well, uh, let me try to clarify it. Um, let me clarify with another example. I'll just use another example. Um, if you go to 
a mineralogical website that I use sometimes. It's called webmineral.com. If you go there and you, you look at um, the comments there about uranium lead dating. Now, uranium is uh, an element that has isotopes and the measurement of the U-238 isotope, as you probably know, King, is uh, 4.5 billion years. Well, if that's the half-life, and we're saying that the Earth is around 5 billion years old, why does that not mean that half of all the original U-238 and some of Gentry's work, why would that not be lead? I mean, we've had four and a half billion years. That's enough time for half of the original uranium-238 to decay. Now, this is where my background it comes in as an economic geologist. I worked for the United States Geological Survey. And I'm sorry, State David, could I, could, I, could I interrupt you really quick? I'm, I'm still not seeing what this has to do with publication bias, the, the accusation of, of publication bias um, for the geochronological literature. Okay, well, let me go back. I thought I'd made this clear earlier. Um, let's see, how could I say this? In 1997, I went to Dalrymple's lecture at the Geological Society of America annual meeting. And he and his agnostic buddies made fun of Bishop Usher. They actually had a guy come in dressed as a bishop. And they made fun of the 4004 B.C. date that I support. When Dalrymple gave his talk, he included his participation in the Arkansas creation evolution debate and also the big debate in Louisiana that went to the Supreme Court. My argument is that these papers that Dalrymple put out in the 90s are selective data. In other words, right. have... I get that point. I get that. But can we can we share my screen again? Because I feel like my point's not being understood. Okay. Um, yeah, it's shared. You're good, Casey. You're good to go. Okay. So you can you can see my screen then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So David, uh, let me let me simplify this really quick, uh, really re really broadly for you. Why is this plot, which is generated using the data from this table on the left over here? Why is this plot symmetrical, and why is P greater than 0.05? If there is okay. publication me, bias taking place, if, if there is selective okay. reporting of data. Let me write this down on my whiteboard here, and we'll talk about it. So the, can you make this big? What is the y-axis on this thing? The standard error. Okay, this is standard error. Mm -hmm. Okay. X-axis is, the, so this mean, is the mean measured uh, ages in millions so of years. This is the mean... A Gaussian distribution mean? Poisson distribution? What kind of distribution? Um, these are normally distributed. Okay. These are from, the, from normally. The x-axis is what? Effect? That, what does that say? Effect size. So in, in this context, that means the uh, mean ages. Okay. And so we've got this cone here. And right. the data Monoplot. points 
the door, the data points have got a, uh, uh, are up here at the top. Now, are you saying that the data you've plotted there is from Dalrymple's data? Yes, this is, this comes from the table on the left. Okay. Now, these are up here um, very close to predictions. But what about all these that are scattered all around here? Uh, they they don't have an R value that's statistically valid. Valid? Do they? no no. This this is this is not a correlational plot. This this is a funnel plot. The 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 the, the regression test is not run on this plot. Um, okay, but. So what see, the numbers what, at the bottom, the numbers go from what, 10 up to 80 or something? Uh, I can't read the bottom, the x-axis. The, the x-axis goes from 62 to 68. Those are millions of years. 62 million years mm -hmm. to 68 million. Right. And what this plot is measuring is the relationship between the measured mean and the standard error, the, the standard deviation, quote-unquote, of of these results now we would expect if there's publication bias for there to be a non-trivial skew of this results in one direction or the other or just just wildly scattered all over the place but what we see instead is is a symmetrical distribution which means that there isn't really a preference for uh where they want their data to land um the the most precise measurements um, which are the, the ones that are closest to the true effect size. Um, these are converged upon um, by all of the other data, including the, the less precise measurements. Um, whereas for a biased literature set, we would expect there to be a whole bunch of less precise measurements that are clustering around some preferred value. Um, and we can well, quantify that a, using the regression test. For, so, so what I'm saying is a, you, can, you can apply this kind of test broadly throughout the literature to check for publication bias, but I've applied it specifically to this instance, and there is no evidence of it here. Well, I'm guessing you work in the biomedical field because of the data set revolving around uh, mammography. Um, in I'm a biomedical physicist. Uh, say it again. I'm a biomedical physicist. Well, that's good to know. I couldn't find that online. Um, the uh, when I worked for the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, one of my coworkers was a LSU-trained uh, radiation lady, whose job it was to calibrate and check the calibration of mammography equipment in Louisiana, and so. She found in her going here and there that uh, many, uh, many of the mammography devices were not calibrated correctly. Now, what's my point? My point is I choose to disagree with the data that uh, Dalrymple published in the mid-90s. Let's go on to our next uh, point, please. But I'm, I'm not understanding why, though. Like the, the claim that you made earlier the suggestion you made is that there is a conspiracy. Uh, it's not a top-down conspiracy. It's a bottom-up conspiracy, as we clarified. That's the result of perverse incentive structures. They suppose, Supposedly, they don't want to lose their jobs, so they're just throwing out. Yeah, exactly. But, exactly. But, if, but then if that were the case, we would see this plot here being skewed uh, in one direction or the other. It, it would not be symmetrical, 
and this p-value here would be less than 0.05. So what I'm saying here is that this analysis that I performed, uh, actually for both data sets, here's the one for the other one, um, these things do not show evidence of what you're saying to be the case. Well, uh, we're going to have to disagree on that because I've actually been in lectures by Professor Dalrymple uh, at the 1997 uh, Geological Society of America annual meeting. I have heard him laugh at Bishop Usher. I've heard him laugh at the concept of a young earth. And so he himself is a biased researcher. I'd prefer to leave it at that. Okay, so the guy has preferences and he, and he laughs at people, but uh, like, okay, whatever. I, I, I guess... Uh, I guess this is something we'll just have to put off to the side. Well, what we could do, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Casey. Oh, I was, I was going to ask what he thought of my earlier remark concerning radiation sterilizing all life on Earth, but uh, I, I guess. Yeah, I can, I can respond to that, sure. Uh, during the last year, George Bond and I have been working on the physics associated with um, the mantle crust boundary. And so let me answer lowercase king here, the biomedical guy. Um, I would imagine you're afraid of losing your job should you use your real name on uh, this debate, but I'll, that's something to the one side. So let's, let's draw a cross section here. Of, uh, of the earth, let's put a, a ship up here. And we have the, um, the lower crust, and then we have the mantle. George and I have been working on some statistics and some evidence, if you will, from, from this boundary. There seem to be, under the Hawaiian chain, and also under South Africa, actually, some objects that are moving up that are called BLOBS, blobs. These are zones that are, are moving up from the mantle into the crust. And from the calculations we've done, King, uh, is that lowercase King capital? Uh, it's I understand. The uh, um, from the calculations we've done, um, when you look at these blobs as they move up, they do not match the evolutionary prediction. In other words. They're obviously not millions of years old, but instead uh, they are quite young. But David, what does that have to do with the radiation problem? Oh, I'm, I'm coming to that. Just give me a minute here. Let me see if I actually have this reference here. Um, um, I don't have it quickly. What it has to do with the radiation problem is this. Uh, if these sort of blobs occurred during the year-long worldwide flood, 
they would then become uh, heat sinks. And so not only in these areas are there obviously a thermal rise, but if you look at the physics of it, these things can cut both ways. So in Baumgartner's catastrophic plate tectonics model, which has the plates moving not a few centimeters a year, but meters per hour, this is going to allow the heat generated in this area to be taken back down to the mantle. Uh, I would I refer. I think there's some confusion here, David. I'm I'm not asking for an account of where the the thermal radiation went. I'm I'm talking about the ionizing radiation, the the ionizing radiation byproduct. Yeah, yes, it's true that that heat is emitted um, uh, a small, a relatively small amount for for an individual decay event. A lot of people are surprised to hear this, but the there's this dose called LD50, um, which means lethal dose 50, and uh, 50% of the population who get exposed to this dose, they die within a couple of months. And that dose of radiation will release enough heat to warm your coffee mug uh, by only like a fraction of a degree. A lot of people are surprised to hear this because it's, it's not actually the energy itself, the, the amount of energy from radiation that kills you. It's the, it's the radiation, uh, how it distributes through your body and, and how it uh, damages your DNA through ionization events. Um, but put, putting that off to the side, it's 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 the ionizing radiation that I'm trying to refer to here. It's it's the stuff that is flowing through the materials and is that is going in every direction on Earth, um, and is accelerated to to a substantially greater degree than than what's happening right now. Because if you, if you accelerate if you accelerate the decay rate, you're accelerating the flux of of um, ionizing radiation, and if you're accelerating the flux of ionizing radiation especially to the to the degree that creationism requires which is like on the order of hundreds of thousands uh, of, 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 of a factor of hundreds of thousands um, you are now delivering lethal doses of ionizing radiation even without the temperature right you, you, you could do well, this without- I see uh, I see King that you and I share some experiences uh, I uh, uh, have over 20 graduate hours in toxicology and further training through OSHA. So I know exactly what you mean when you talk about LD50, a dose of radiation or a dose of lead or arsenic that will kill 50% of the population. What I'm trying to suggest is that while George Bond and I do not have every answer, we're moving in a direction where this LD50 calculation that's been done by you and others is simply incorrect. Uh, there would not be that sort of dose. Um, but, but David, it's, it's not just me and, you know, others who agree with like the, the rate project, the, the, the group of creationists who got together yes. and tried to address this, they themselves have acknowledged that the radiation problem uh, is unresolved and will continue to be unresolved until some exotic new physics are discovered. This is, this is fatal not only to the people who are living on Earth and who get exposed to this ionizing radiation. This, this is fatal to creationism. Well, see, I beg to differ because of the work that uh, uh, George Bond and I have done. Perhaps one of the things that Donnie can do for me is to uh, post uh, on this debate 
the reference to the two-hour discussion that George and I had, Donnie, about um, this whole issue of the LD50 being incorrect. By the way, when I mentioned LD50, uh, I'm not saying that the dose of, of the Earth is going to be at LD50. It's actually going to be much higher than that. It's going to be probably closer to like LD99. Okay. What's your next point, my friend? Actually, what we could do, uh, gentlemen, with the last 12 minutes, King Crocodile, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you asked the last two questions, this one pertaining to the heat problem, more or less. Uh, uh, the radiation David, problem. The, the radiation problem. If we wanted to, we could have David now uh, pose you a question and engage sure. that for a little bit. Yeah, why not? Okay, here's my uh, a question for you. Um, going back to this webmineral.com reference that I'm talking about, if the half-life of U-238 is 4.5 billion years, and if you are correct that the Earth is 5 billion years old, then half of the original uranium, whatever amount, should be converted to lead. I have actually visited lead-zinc mines in Tennessee. It's called the Mississippi Valley Lead-Zinc Deposit. And I have collected there or have been given galena, which is lead sulfide. Others, not me, but others, have said, well, if the evolutionary, if the old earth position is true, you should find detectable amounts of U-238 in these lead crystals. And when they have done this, they have not found them. And then the second thing I'd like you to comment on it turns out that both Andrew Snelling and I have background in uh, uranium geology, what are called roll front, roll front deposits. Even Bob Gentry had an interest in um, primary versus secondary polonium halos and uranium halos. But explain this to me. Uh, if you go to the western U.S. or you go to Australia, the uranium buried minerals are basically uranium oxides. How come you don't find any lead in these uranium minerals? Um, so I'm not sure I really understand the objection. Is, is it, just to clarify, are we saying that there is a deficit of lead where we would expect half of it to have been, uh, half of it to have decayed to lead? Yes, that's correct. Um, let me check the uranium decay chain really quick, and I might come up with an answer. So give me one sec here. Gentry documents the uranium decay chain in his book. If those of you that are watching do not own a copy of this book, Gentry died a couple of years ago. I think there's a third edition. This is the second edition. Okay, so... Uh, to, to answer your question, um, uranium doesn't decay straight to lead. It decays into a bunch of other things on the way. There's uh, oh, of course, yeah. radium, there's polonium, uh, there's uh, mercury. There's a, there's a whole bunch of things that it decays to. Um, uh, let me see right But here. we do agree that it ends up in lead, right? Uh, at the end, sure, but you're going to have a whole distribution of elements along the way, it seems. 
So astatine, uh, bismuth, uh, tallium. Uh, some of these are more longer lasting than others. So radium, for example, that's going to last for 1,600 years. Um, so yeah, there's going to be there's going to be a, a, a distribution of, of elements there. I don't I don't know what geological processes might be at work to uh, to to make it so that you know uh, l let's say we have some well defined distribution right of what these elements should be. Yeah, right. Uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know what geological process might be in play um, to sort them in in one way versus another. Uh, in order to produce these kinds of results. I, I would have to look into it more. Okay, well, um, perhaps we can debate again uh, after Christmas and come back to this. Um, yes, I'll, I'll look me, forward uh, to seeing your funnel plot analyses and see if yeah, you found any yeah. evidence of bias. Uh, let me go to another one of Gentry's papers. I quoted one from 74. Um let me flip back here and find this thing. Um, like, here's one of the pieces of equipment I've learned to use over the years, an ion microprobe, electron microprobe. He wrote a paper in 73, ion microprobe confirmation of lead isotope ratios and the search for isomer precursors in polonium halos. Um, and... This paper, I would point out to you, this is in Nature, volume 244. And what makes it interesting is uh, his last paragraph. Listen to this, King. A very rough estimate of what these, reverse, these results mean is that the present existence of the isomer in the, inclu in the inclusion, he's talking about the zircons, may be obtained because lead 206 sputtered when they put more than a thousand hertz. I skip that. One interpretation of these results is that the isomer simply decayed to the point where it was not detected in these experiments. These are examples from an early Precambrian pegmatite in Scandinavia. Now, the reason that that's important, King... It's an interesting interpretation, but go on. The reason that that's important is Gentry traveled to Europe and he got samples of what the evolutionary community was quite convinced were Precambrian pegmatites. Pegmatites is a, a pegmatite is a vein in a granite that's really quite big. Um, but when he came back and did his own analysis at Oak Ridge, it's yet to be determined whether this information is consistent with the proposed isomers um, and so forth. But the, the point is, uh, for me as a geologist, um, he was looking for decay products in an early Precambrian, you know, let's say a billion years ago. But they were not detected in these experiments. So how could you have a billion years of decay and not have this show up in a ion microprobe study? I'm not entirely sure what the argument is. Could, could you clarify what it is that's missing yeah. and why okay. it's important? Yeah, and 
let me do some teaching here. Um, LV99 is a pretty big number. Um, well, so is the, the yeah. factor by which uh, creationism uh, is relative to the actual age of the Earth. You know, divide uh, the um, 4.6 billion by 6,000. It's, yeah, it's going to be a big a number, big, too. It's a big difference. But at any rate, to, to teach you about this, uh, if you have a granite, the igneous rock granite, that is ordinarily associated with mountain building and ordinarily assumed to be very old. For example, in the Grand Canyon, which I've hiked five times in four years, when you get down at the bottom, back in the 80s, you'd find a granite there. And uh, it's often associated from a creation standpoint with uh, rocks formed during the creation week. But that to one side. Wait, is that an unconformity? Oh, no, no. I'm I'm drawing here. Let me try to put a scale here. This is a scale of uh, one meter. And uh, I've cut this thing. This is granite on this side. But there's a vein going through it that have that has very large crystals in it. And these are crystals of the same um, uh, phyllosilicates, um, the same uh, feldspar, the same quartz, QTZ, that you find in the granite, except they're really big uh, in, in, the, uh, in the pegmatite. So in geology, we have a standard rule that if a vein cuts through, so we'll call this number one, if this vein, which we'll call number two, is cross-cutting number one, it means that it's younger than the, uh, the uh, host. And so the way it ties into this argument is when Gentry went and found these isomers in the pegmatite, evolutionary theory, if these things really are a billion years old, the isomers in here should show significant decay products, but they did not. I see. So are they located in the wrong place relative to the, their apparent age? Because I think uh, the, the typical explanation for this is that there's an angular unconformity that places something that is apparently um, younger in a location um, stratigraphically that, that makes it appear older. Well, uh, let me clarify that. This is a cross-section one meter. If you go to... Um, many places on earth, here's a tree and you look into a hillside, you will often see um, rocks like Precambrian rocks tilted up with their foliation going down this way, and then there'll be sedimentary rocks here. This is what we call an angular unconformity, not this. But we don't want to turn this into a geology lesson here. Let's go on. Where are we now? Are we ready for some questions from the audience? It is now one minute left. 
I'll let you take that, King. Um, well, only one minute to ask a question. <laughs> uh, may maybe it's best if we just go straight to the Q&A. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, gentlemen, let me uh, let me jump in. We do have our five-minute concluding statements where we can uh, wrap up our thoughts, wrap up our points. Uh, fantastic discussion, very technical, uh, but very in enjoyable. Lots of good uh, points on both sides and, and lots of good discussion. I'll definitely be re-listening re to this. We've got a ton of awesome questions from the audience pertaining to this important topic. But before we get to those, let's hand it to uh, Casey, since you started us, us off with your opening statement. Uh, let's give you the first five minutes and then we'll give David, you get five minutes and we'll get into some audience questions. Go ahead. Cool. Thank can you. you can you see my screen? Well, yes. Yeah. All right. It's full screen. It is. Looks cool. Good. So I'm just I'm just going to quickly reiterate the basic points. Um, first of all, decay rates are indeed derivable from fundamental physics. Um, Dave McQueen mentioned earlier that uh, there's going to be a 30 percent deviation. Um, that might be true of Gamow's original calculation if you apply it to. Uh, certain types of nuclei. Like I mentioned earlier, he made the assumption that atoms are going to be spherically symmetric. But the reason you have radioactive decay in the first place is because you have this kind of tug-of-war process taking place between the electromagnetic force and the strong nuclear force. And as you increase the number of protons in the nucleus, this tug-of-war becomes more and more strained. And uh, depending on the configuration of of these neutrons, uh, and or sorry, of, of the protons and the neutrons in, in the in the nucleus, um, this straining effect extends out to the, the actual geometry of the atom, such that the orbitals are no longer necessarily spherically symmetric. So, for certain types of radioisotopes, the assumption of spherical symmetry is not warranted, and you have to apply corrections. And, and once those corrections are applied, then you get the right answer. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, once once you model, the better you model these things from fundamental physics, um, the closer you get to the experimentally observed values. And I think that this fact is devastating to creationism because now you're not just at war with geochronology, you're also at war with quantum mechanics. Um, second, the cross-confirmation, you know, uh, we, we talked about this as well. It seems that when you send the this stuff out although dave says that there are only about 200 people in the world uh, there aren't that many people uh but but i think 200 is is an exaggeration it's 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 i think it's it's smaller than than what the number actually is um the number isn't huge you know any narrow field of expertise is, is going to have a finite number of people um in north america the number of medical physicists is like ten thousand. so I don't know if that's small enough to count as a cult, but the point is if, if, if you want to check for publication bias, uh, the tools are available to you. You can check for them based on the analyses that I've done so far. Um, it doesn't look to be the case that there's publication bias, so I'm not sure that the suggestion of bias and conspiracy hold up given, given this information. Um, but, you know... I have I, here. Here are some results from Bouvier et al. from ten years later, and they they match the ones from um, from fifteen years prior. So it's table one on the right. You've got uh, four and a half billion years. That's that's the age that you get using all of these different methods, and then using a completely different method using uh, lead lead dating. You know, he gets the same results, and it's not just like one measurement. You can see there's there. This is only one table. There are actually a lot of tables like this, and they consistently show four and a half billion years, four and a half billion years, four and a half billion years. Um, 
So, you know, it's it's just not plausible given uh, the cross confirmation of all of these different techniques, all of these different labs across all of this, all of these points in time. Given the conjunction of that with these funnel plots, um, that there is that there is a, a substantial degree of publication bias taking place. And then finally. Um, the philosophical point, like you can you can gesture to individual anomalies. You can point to details here or there where something doesn't appear to make a great deal of sense and where you have to continue to do more reading and more digging into it until you see, oh, okay, there's a plausible explanation, right? The polonium hails, there's there's a plausible explanation involving uh, the, the decay of radon, a gas that, that slips through the cracks um, for, you know, uh, whatever whatever else David brought up that I might not necessarily have had an answer to right away. You know, you, you you bring a geologist in and, and they'll be able to say, well, here's here's a plausible explanation that doesn't violate everything we know about physics. Um, the point is, if, if you're going to suggest a kind of revolutionary overthrow of the existing science, um, you know, pointing to individual anomalies here and there, it's, it's just not going to cut it. You have to do better than that. And, uh, yeah, um, the, the conclusion... Just less than a minute left. Yeah, that's fine. The conclusion, in my view, still stands... This picture is still correct. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, uh, King Crocodile, for that five-minute concluding statement. We are now going to hand it over to David McQueen. David, whenever you're ready, you also have a five-minute concluding statement. Go ahead. Good. I want to take the first minute to talk about some of uh, King's misunderstandings. Um, if he goes back, to Gentry's 1974 paper, and he works through reference 16, which is based on alpha decay theory, he will discover that it does not match. It simply does not match the critique that Dalrymple and others have given about uh, the rate of radioactive decay. He correctly pointed out that if you give the evolutionary community every benefit of the doubt, the um, dr over r, capital d, lowercase r over r, is 1.4, which gives a, for uranium-238, a 35% error. Now, that's a big error when you're trying to figure out the geologic column. But if you follow Gentry's logic at the bottom king of that reference, you'll find that under creationist assumptions, um, there is no proof at all that uh, the decay rate has been constant. The second point that he makes about um, the issue of uh, consistency from one person to another, and I, am, I must admit, King, I am going to look up that reference that you gave for the person that went back to apparently Dalrymple's data and uh, confirmed it independently for four and a half billion years. And so um, now I want to go into a different way of, uh, of argument, and that is the philosophical way. Uh, my point bears on this whole issue of mammography. Keep in mind that although there are problems with the uh, mammography and the interpretation of the x-rays, there are women that really do have breast cancer. 
and there are women that never have had it. And so the conclusions of philosophical arguments are important. I would suggest to you that King's overall viewpoint claiming to be an atheist is just foolish. Uh, he hasn't turned over every rock in the universe. He has no idea that God might be hiding behind Jupiter right now. He doesn't know that. So he's an agnostic. He's not a uh, uh, a uh, an atheist. And when you go to uh, the Bible as a source of information, I would present an argument for our Q and A time that the Bible is a histor is a historical document. Now, is it a book of science? No, of course not. So that um, when you read, and for example, Second Kings chapters. Uh, uh, chapter 7, uh, that Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Archaeologists have been able to find evidence of both Elijah and Elisha. And there's plenty of archaeological evidence to prove that Jesus was a real man. The question that we have before us tonight is, if the Bible's a trustworthy document, then there are some real implications. I know that on your website, you have a real interest in politics. There are arguments about uh, the Christian's relationship to government. When should we be obey and when should we not? But going back to the point of this argument, uh, I'm concerned that uh, King and other old earth evolutionists that are agnostics are missing the evidence that our world uh, gives. President Ronald Reagan had a one-liner that was pretty good. He said uh, he, once brought, thank you, he once brought in a bunch of atheists to eat a fabulous meal at the White House. And after they had finished the meal, he said, well, I hear you all are atheists. So he went out to the Rose Garden and when he brought him back in, he said, when you ate that meal, was there a cook, you think? Oh, yeah, there had to be a cook. When you see the beauty of nature, there has to be a loving God. Okay, thank you so much, uh, David McQueen, for your uh, concluding statement again. Gentlemen, Casey, David, thank you for an excellent debate. We're now moving into audience questions. And uh, Kaz, I'll hand it over to you and uh, kind of lead us into that. All right. So thank you so much, both of you, for such a spirited conversation. And we will go ahead and kick into the Q&A. Uh, and standing for truth, you do have uh, your copy of the questions. I will take the evens, just like the odds. Sounds good? Sounds good. Um, Want to let you guys know uh, in the chat that if we if you have a question for one of tonight's debaters, we do have plenty of room on the super chats list. So go ahead and send those in if you want to make sure that your question gets addressed. And I will keep an eye out on that uh, for on the live chat for that. So in the meantime, the first question, uh, I guess I'll take the odds. You'll take the even. So I'll go first. Uh, the first super chat comes in from Surgeon General for five dollars. They say, I wonder if my bones could be dated using this and testing specifically for plutonium decay that is from atomic bombs we tested here in the USA. 
Oh yeah, they do. Um, they do radiometric dating. I, I don't think um, inside of living tissue, but they do radiometric dating um, related to fallout isotopes. I have seen literature for that, and that also works. May I make a comment about that also? Oh, sure. here's my we'll stuff. We'll get the last word. Say it again. Sure, but King Crocodile will get the last word. Yes, I understand. Uh, you know, here's my cell phone, which I turn off. Uh, if you want to find out the age of the cell phone caller, you just go on the back and you can figure out that the iPhone 6 was made this year. iPhone 7 was made that year. And you see, you're, you're making my point, even though maybe you don't want to make my point, uh, that the people at Apple are reliable when it comes to talking about the date that a cell phone was made, just as the Bible is reliable in talking about the age of the earth being 6,000 years old. Casey, you can have the final word. Question was for you. King Crocoduck, are you there? Now, he did mention before we went live, Kaz, that he might have had a internet issue once or twice, so this could be one of those moments. That's okay. If you want to go ahead and just ask the next question, and we'll uh, sure. see if he hears it. If not, we will just move. Uh, okay. We'll, we'll play right here. Surgeon General, thank you for that super chat. Next question comes in from Creationist Crybaby. $5 super chat. Thank you so much for supporting this channel. So the question is for you, Professor David McQueen. The rates of seafloor spreading are made using GPS measurements. Why do the GPS rates agree with estimates of rates based on radioisotopes? Crybaby, you and I have spoken in the past and you uh, are incorrect in what you say. Let me give you a reference that you can go to. Um, I worked for the United States Geological Survey for many years, and I was based in headquarters at one point in Washington, D.C., and I had some interaction with people that were working at the NASA Goddard facility in Maryland. Well, one of the scientists there, and this would have been I guess, 1980, uh, was named Lohman, Paul Lohman, L-O-W-M-A-N. And he, he published a number of papers that directly bear on what you're saying. He got data from a unit, like a radio unit in the USA, and then he got data. Say it again. Sorry. And so he got also data from Greenland. I'll put a G here. This is USA. And then he got data from, I guess, the west coast of Ireland. And he actually shot these points. Now, many of you probably know that Iceland is in the middle between Greenland and, and, and Ireland. And so the Mid-Atlantic Ridge goes through that area. And Crybaby, if what you were saying was true, Paul Lohman should have seen uh, the evidence 
of separation along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. But what did he find? What did he find? He found that the uh, error rate, talking about the statistics that uh, King likes so much, that the error, error rate was within the standard deviation of the uh, um, standard uh, deviation of the, of the measure. And What's so what he found, Paul Loman. Uh, King, are you there? there. Yeah, there. Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, David, we're just going to do a, a quick audio test on, on uh, King Crocoduck here. I think he okay. might be having some issues. No problem. Um, maybe Crocoduck, if you want to give us a, a, a quick audio test right now. I check one, too. It's coming in pretty choppy on my end. Uh, what about you, Kaz? A little choppy, but I mean, at least I, there. I can't hear him on my end. Okay, my check one, too. Is this better? Sorry, but I, I, I did warn you before. Forward, my my internet has been pretty spotty, so I do apologize. For that. We understand. Uh, no I think we should just press on with this if this maintains. Uh, but uh, can we move on to the next question? Sure. Yeah. Are we, are we done with that one? Unless uh, okay. uh, David, if you wanted to wrap up your thoughts, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off there. No, I was done. There, okay. there is evidence that in the past the continents have separated but there's not evidence that in our modern world they continue to separate in the zone between the mid-atlantic and Iceland. okay sounds great all right the next question is coming in from hate stairs for ten dollars they say uh david why do you think about the what do you think about the mounds of literature and publications that debunk and criticize Gentry's work, mainly for being short-sighted and not taking everything into account? Do elaborate, please. Yeah, I'll be glad to elaborate on that. When I worked for Bob Gentry between 1972 and 1975, I myself was a geology student at the University of Tennessee. And so some of the ways that Gentry talked about things, like his use of the word provenance, um, weren't really geologic kind of words. Uh, I told him during that period of time that if he's going to look at um, halos, from, I think it's a famous locality called Wolfendorf in Europe. If you're going to look at it there, and then you're going to come to the Grand Canyon, G-R-C-A, Grand Canyon, and go down to the uh, rocks in the uh, Zoroaster and other parts of the Grand Canyon, and you're going to talk about uranium lead ratios and polonium to 10, you need to put it into geologic vocabulary. And so some people, and I think appropriately, have criticized Gentry's uh, style of reference, if you will, in this book and in some of his papers, where he talks about uh, this, for example, the one that I challenged Lowercase King with there a few minutes ago, this one from 1974, 
Let me find it again. See, when Gentry writes this sentence to his buddies that are physicists, it's pretty reasonable. You know, he talks about the present abundance of the isomer is less than 10 to the minus third of that in lead 206. Then he goes on. One interpretation of these results is the isomer has simply decayed to the point where it was not detected in the experiments. Well, it should have been detected, but listen to how Gentry describes it. These samples were from an early Precambrian pegmatite in Scandinavia. And so, as a geologist, what I would have preferred Gentry to put there is that the Volsendorf area, or whatever area this was in Scandinavia, was at latitude and longitude this. It was found adjacent to Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian. In other words, I wanted more geologic detail, but he was not concerned. All right. Standing for truth. You want to go to the next one? We might sure. want to uh, just keep the uh, answers. I mean, I don't know how many more questions will come in. We don't have a big list, but I don't know if a lot more will come in. So we might want to just uh, try to limit our uh, responses to maybe a minute or so just to try to well, keep it moving. But thank you. I understand. Thank it's you, a Kaz. big question. I do understand. I, I'm sorry. Thank you, Kaz. I, I actually took a nap today, so I can go to two hours, 30 minutes if you want to. Oh, oh. by all means. <laughs> I understand. Okay, guys. Appreciate it. Let's move on to the next uh, Before question. we do, uh, how do I sound now? Do I sound any better or am I still much chopping? Better, much better. Much, okay. much better. Yeah. I can hear what you're saying. Fully improved. And therefore, if, if, if Casey, I'm not sure if, if he wanted to respond to anything or, or should we just go right to the next question that is going. Honestly, I, I was I was scrambling for much of that to get my equipment working. So my, my, my apologies. No worries. Just glad that uh, you got it figured out. And it uh, looks like we can move along smoothly. So this next question comes in from Samir Farsane. Thank you so much. $5 super chat. Thanks for supporting the channel. Question for Croc. <clears throat> Are you fine with using the Romanogen? I'm not sure if I said that right. Uh, summation in brackets. He puts one plus two plus three plus four to infinity equals zero to prove the Kashmir effect then use that to prove quantum fluctuations. Um, I'm not familiar with that technique. I mean, I don't have a problem with the Casimir effect or with quantum fluctuations. Um, you know, they, they've been observed. They're a thing. Um, Ramanujan, I'm, I'm not terribly familiar with the calculation being referred to. I'm very skeptical that the sum of integers um, does anything other than diverge. Uh, but maybe there's some Riemann Zeta um, stuff going on that, that I, I, I haven't looked at. So um, no answer. Sorry. Gotcha. And then from uh, Samir Farsane, once again, for $5, they say at uh, to you, King Crocodile, uh, how do you explain petrified trees standing upright through layers dated millions of years apart? Did the trees die that slowly or layers are the same age? I think this is the polystrate uh, tree argument, isn't it? Where the where the trees were rapidly. Yes, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah so um, there aren't multiple sediments. There are not multiple sedimentary layers. This this is all uh, one mixed layer. This this uh, so I I don't believe that they were actually uh, dated differently. Um, 
it's been a while since I looked at that argument. Um, you can check my response to Eric Hoven when he came up with it. This was this was years and years ago. It was in the fifth Eric Hoven commentary. If you want to take a look at that, um, I give a comprehensive answer then there. But right off the top of my head, I, I don't I don't recall the details. I just remember that uh, contrary to the creationist claim, it was not multiple sedimentary layers that these trees were contained within. It was one big layer. Kaz, am I allowed to make a comment? Yes. To that? Go ahead, uh, in, David. Go ahead. In Middle Tennessee, um, there are polystrate fossils that uh, some names that you may know, uh, people like uh, John Mackay from Australia. He and I have gone there together. And around Nashville, Tennessee, um, Around Nashville, Tennessee, there is a outcropping of uh, rocks that contain um, the uh, hmm, um, the coal measures, and in that area, let me ask Mrs. McQueen's help. Shirley, would you bring me this map near the microwave, please? I can actually show the audience uh, what I'm talking about here. Thank you for that. Yeah. Here's the King and Bikeman map of the United States. N is where Nashville is. Uh, this here on this side, if I can get my hand around. That side is the Mississippi Delta. But at any rate, the N is where Nashville is. And you'll notice the blue color there. That is the color of the uh, sediments around Nashville, including some what we would call coal measures or coal seams. So with my own eyes, uh, King, I have seen a, a layer of coal, and I must admit I have to pause. I think that this distance here might be uh, 10 meters, actually. There's a layer of coal here, a polystrate tree that really is uh, going through all these layers. And if you take um, Steve Austin's PhD dissertation at Penn State, 79, he talks about alloxanous coal and autoxanous coal. A lot of movement, moving whole units versus coal that's formed in place. There's no evidence of peak down here. There's no evidence that this tree grew. So look into it. Sure, but uh, frankly, I wouldn't trust C. Boston to make me a turkey sandwich. <laughs> ah, all right. Well, he might well, we, not we, we, allow we, you. We, we really do not let uh, King Cogadoc have the last word on that one, just because then we okay, should move on. That. I mean, there, there's not much to say about this particular case because I'm I'm only familiar with the Canadian context and I believe the Yellowstone context. Um, the polystrate uh, argument, as, as I've been presented with it, uh, pertained to this kind of thing happening in Nova Scotia and near Yellowstone. Uh, the Nashville case, I, I, I wouldn't be terribly surprised to learn that it's the same story as with the other two, uh, which is that it's not actually multiple distinct layers. It's it's just one big layer. Okay. Yeah, I, I can get to the next question. Thank you for the comprehensive answers, uh, Casey and David. Next one comes in from Coffee Mom. Coffee sounds good right about now. $5 super chat. Thanks so much. And the question is, um, I don't see it specif um, 
specifying anybody. We'll read it together, I guess. Can you describe the differences in methodology between the 1970s and the 2020s? Uh, maybe it's a question for the both of you. Well, I wouldn't know. I wasn't alive in the 1970s. So whatever <laughs> might have been true uh, in, in David's experiences in the 70s might not necessarily be true today. But I wouldn't be able to comment on that since I wasn't around. Appreciate it. Yes, I will. I'll be glad to comment on that. King, I would challenge you on this point. Is something wrong just because it's old? No. Darwin's uh, Darwin's publication was 1859. He was preceded in the 1830s and others by. Uh, I'm a substitute science teacher here in Louisiana, and when I open up the biology book, or well, I'll use biology book. They sing the praise of, of Darwin. Oh, how he is the father of evolution. And 1859 is so wonderful. So just because Gentry published in the 70s, and just because Dalrymple and, and others published in the 90s, and um, tell me again the name of that guy that you referred to that redid some of that statistics. There was... Dalrymple, of course, is data, and then there was another slide you put up. Yeah, let me find the name really quick. What is that guy's name? It's like a French or something. Yeah, yeah, it began with B. Uh, Bovier, 2006. Bovier. I'm going to look into that, but uh, the way I would answer that for the caller is uh, just because something is 50 years old doesn't mean it's not right. Yeah, I wouldn't claim that to be the case. I'm just saying times change, techniques change, paradigms change. It's just life. Gotcha. Okay, from Samir Farsane for $5, they say uh, to King Crocodile, how can you prove that daughter elements like lead and uranium weren't already present in samples uh, who, when it formed, you can either deny or confirm? Yeah, so um, looking specifically again at the case of, of uranium and lead, um, the formation of zircon crystals are, uh, they're based on condensed matter physics. And if you look at the math for that specific case, there, there are only certain allowed elements, um, certain allowed energy thresholds that have to be met in order for these crystalline structures to form. And in the case of uh, uranium lead dating with, with these zircon crystals, um, it's not possible for them to form using any conventional methods, at least that I'm aware of, um, that allows lead to be present inside of this crystal structure. So the only way the lead gets there, the only way lead becomes part of that structure, is if it's initially uranium and then it decays into lead. Gotcha. Am and, I allowed yep. to comment? Yeah, you get the last word, uh, David. Since it, it was it, originally, it was for uh, David the question, right, Kaz? Or no, I, it, I was working crocodile actually. Right, right. Okay, it, it, David, go ahead, and then we'll give Casey the last word. Well, the the error that King is making is the error that Darwin and so many um, in the uh, 1800s made. They assumed that the present is the key to the past. And so they accepted the paradigm that things in the past happened long ago, very slow, using erosion and sedimentation rates that we see today. 
as a young earth creationist, I take the viewpoint that things happened in the not too distant past, 6,000 years, but happened catastrophically, very rapidly. And so this uh, question of uh, how do we know, well, we, we measure modern uranium decay rates at Oak Ridge, and it does come up with 4.5 billion years for the half-life. But the failure is that many scientists now recognize that the present is not the key to the past. You cannot go to the cliffs of Dover and sit in your lawn chair and see the erosion of them and get any idea how they actually eroded or were deposited. Thank you. I think David has misunderstood the problem here. Um, it's not merely that we think that there are these general large-scale uh, higher-order processes that, are, that have been the same uh, over time. Of course, we know that's not true. Um, it's the laws of physics that remain constant over time. And in this case, condensed matter physics, which allow only for certain configurations of elements um, under certain conditions. And in the case of zircon crystals, you know, if, if you can identify a mechanism that allows a zircon crystal to form with lead already in it, I think you'll have the ghost of a point. But as far as I can tell, it's just not physically possible. Okay. Thank you very much for the responses from the both of you. Uh, next question that comes in is from TLO. Thank you for the $10 super chat. And this one is for you, uh, David. Does David know about the 1997 dating of Mount Vesuvius Igneous Rock? It was Argon to Argon dating, and the test results showed an age of 1,925 years. Since it was 1997, that was only off by seven years. Okay, well, we can talk about that. Um, let's see. Now, where to begin on this? Historically, from Roman historians, probably the Jewish historian Josephus, we know when Vesuvius blasted off. And so we have a historical date for um, the eruption of Vesuvius. So we know that from eyewitness accounts. King Crocoduck has accused me of some sort of global conspiracy, global um, cooperation among these 200 people that do radiometric dating. Uh, that's not what I think. And I, I hate to return to money. Isn't it strange how so many things revolve around money? And I'll, and I'll say it this way. Whoever got this date uh, being only nine years difference, if they had not done that, they would have lost their job and their children would not go to college. They, they have to choose a date that matches the evolutionary bias. And so I reject that date because it's some 50-year-old guy who wants to still make his Mercedes-Benz payment and send his children 
to a good school like University of Tennessee. That's, that's my explanation. Well, Dave, the good news is I provided you with a tool that would actually allow you to substantiate that claim with evidence instead of just telling stories. So you go ahead, you look up funnel plots, you look up Egger's regression test, you look up uh, Bayesian, robust Bayesian meta-analysis. That's really the gold standard, I think. Um, you go ahead and you use these tools and you expose those uh, dishonest yeah. geologists. In uh, January or February, when we have another debate, my friend, um, I will have looked into those methods and uh, we'll talk more okay. then. So incidentally, I, I have I actually want to uh, just just uh, bounce off that question a little bit. Uh, Dave, what about your uh, lifestyle? What about the payments that you've received from the Institute of Creation Research? Answers in Genesis, whatever other organizations you've been affiliated with, couldn't a person make the exact same accusation against you? Well, ha, let me write some numbers <laughs> up on the board and uh, be able to show you how that's actually not true. Um, when, when I joined ICR in 1983, um, so I joined the Institute for Creation Research in one of the most beautiful parts of America, in San Diego, in 1983. We had wanted to buy a house out there, so my wife called a realtor and told the realtor what I made, and the realtor laughed in her face. She said, you can't even afford to live in your car in San Diego for that amount of salary. And so it's kind of sad, and I'm sad to tell you, King, that I did not make the $100,000 a year that I needed to be able to live in California. I recently wrote an article for uh, the Answers in Genesis magazine that was accepted for publication. And I, I spent many hours, probably 40 hours, on this article uh, for which I was paid less than $400. Now, I could have sent, what would it have been, four jokes to Reader's Digest and made that kind of money. And so I hope that gives you uh, a, a viewpoint. But I want to be quick to add this. In 50 years of marriage and 70 years of life, I probably only missed one or two meals. So from my viewpoint, God has provided for me uh, even as someone who does not have a PhD, I have a master's. Um, you know, in my weakness, I have found strength. So that's the way I would answer your question. I okay. think the people uh, who you accuse of conspiracy, well, not a top-down conspiracy, but a bottom-up conspiracy, could also tell stories. And I think, uh, you know, I think their stories and your story uh well, I guess we're, we're approaching the end, but the, the the point is, yeah, look into those uh, those methods I I talked about and see if you can discover. Anything. Yeah, I will do that in the next few months. Cool. All right, got two more questions uh, from Samir Farsane uh, for five dollars. They say the moon supposedly formed from orbiting 
remains of a collision of a past of an ancient planet with Earth. Identify any foreign rocks or they all went to the moon? Um, so not all of them. Uh, we A lot of people don't know this. We actually have multiple moons. Uh, it's just that the other ones are, are relatively small, but uh, they're there. Um, some of them are leftover debris. Some of them, I think, might have been just captured. Um, but, yeah, for the most part, uh, whatever whatever remained from the Thea collision, uh, it accreted back to the Earth and onto the thing that eventually became the moon. And Donnie? With the last one? And uh, if, if David wanted to respond to that, then we'd give Casey the last word. David, I saw you writing on the whiteboard. Is there anything you want yeah, to add? Yeah, yeah, there's a, an error that King has made there. If you look at the different explanations for our moon, there is the mother-daughter theory. There is the kind of a coalescence theory. And then there's this impact theory where a, quite a large asteroid or something hit the Earth and ejected the moon out. Um, Dr. Don DeYoung is a retired uh, professor from the Midwest, and he's written an excellent book on the origin of the moon, and he debunks all of these ideas especially the one that um, King advocated. Thank you, David. King Crocodile, you can have the last word if you'd like. Question was for you. Uh, well, I mean, what's there to say? Um, Don DeYoung, a guy said a thing. I don't know what the thing is, but apparently the thing disproves whatever I believe. So what, what's there to add? Okay, let's move on to uh, the next question. This wraps up the Super Chats, and then I think, um, if it's okay with Kaz, I think we'll have time for a few of the uh, regular questions after this. Um, I don't know. Do we have uh, time for that, King Crocodile? Do you have time to stay? Um, sorry, could you repeat the question? Do you have time to stay for more questions? Because uh, we didn't have time slotted for the Q&A in the format. Uh, I, I could do a few more minutes, sure. Okay. okay. And I, okay. too, can stay to the two hour, 30 minute mark. So I've got 15 more minutes of strength. Okay. Well, thank you uh, for both of your time, uh, guys, for, for making this happen. It's definitely been a great debate. So this is uh, more so a comment, but it's a super chat. So we'll get it in here from Coffee Mom. Coffee Mom says, Darwin found evolution, but we didn't stop there. So there's anything the debaters would like to uh, say to that. Uh, maybe it's I'll more directly to you. I'll let King go first. I've got one more time. What was it? I, uh, my audio is still a little choppy. I'm sorry. No worries. It's, it's just a, it's a comment that came in the form of a super chat. Coffee Mom says Darwin found evolution, but we did not stop there. Um, I'm not really sure what's meant by that. Sounds poetic. <laughs> Maybe because it's more of a comment, you know, we got it in there. We appreciate the support. We'll just move on. Well, to I think it's a very important point that uh, King is missing. The Darwinian viewpoint led, as the years went on, to the idea that came out in the 1920s in the European school system 
uh, all over Europe, but I'll use Germany as an example. Here we in go. The in the 1920s, the German high school students were taught uh, that, hey, hey, evolution's true. So that means that as you look at the evolution of the human race, there must be somebody that's more evolved than somebody else. And so the Germans had a bias, of course, to the Aryan race that they love so much. And so <laughs> they pretty much said, okay, um, let's say that we are actually more evolved than the Jews and the Slavs and people that have Down syndrome. And so let's go measure the noses of these people. Oh, we've got scientific evidence now to find out who can be, and the German word was my high school language, is Fernichtungslager. Who goes into a prison where you're made nothing? My dad fought in World War II, so I have emotion about this. And so the whole issue of the Holocaust revolves around the proper instar in the proper um, conclusion of Darwin's work. David, the Nazis didn't kill Jews because they thought that they were less evolved than them. The Nazis killed Jews because they thought they were evil. They had they had a conspiracy theory uh, that held that Jewish finance and Jewish communism were conspiring with each other to secretly take over the world. Um, regardless of whatever eugenics beliefs they, they had, um, they would have still carried out the Holocaust, even if they thought, uh, you know, even, even if they didn't have, uh, you know, this, this, this perversion of, of evolutionary theory. It wasn't even really evolutionary theory. Uh, they believed in a lot of crazy BS. You, you, you have hyperborean nonsense about uh, these ancient Nordic civilizations living under the ice or whatever. whatever. You, have, you have these occultist beliefs. And, you know, we can, I, I can play this game too. I can point to the former Soviet Union uh, and how their rejection of genetics um, and their rejection of evolutionary theory as it stood at the time uh, led to Lysenkoism, whose implementation caused the deaths of millions. Oh, yeah. So we can, well, we can, I, we can I play this. I can play this game too, David, is what I'm saying. And my well, history will be better because I'm not going to mistake Weimar Germany for Nazi Germany, the Weimar no. Germany being in the 1920s and, and, and Nazi Germany yeah. being in the 30s. No, you're clearly making a mistake. Have you read Mein Kampf either in German or English? Have you actually read what Hitler wrote? I've read parts of it. He's not a great writer. No, no, it's a, it's like a punishment of hell to try to get through it. But if you go to his actual words, you come with a different, and you know. Does he mention Darwin? Does he mention Darwin even once in Mein Kampf? This is a question I actually know the answer to. Um, well, I, I have to pause on that. I think he mentions more the idea of eugenics and Spencer and people like that. Does he even mention Darwin once? No. Uh, guys, appreciate the, the back and forth there. Maybe we should move on to the next yeah. question. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> words. Uh, okay, Kaz, if you wanted to uh, take the next one and then we'll kind of start winding it down from here. Oh, Kaz, I think you're on mute. Okay, now you can hear me, I'm sure. 
Uh, two more super chats came in from TLO for five dollars. They say, just FYI, the Mount Vesuvius dating test and results are available online for free. Did David read slash look at those before saying it was a big conspiracy? Question mark. Okay, I would uh, like for you to send that either to Kaz or to uh, Donnie, and I will take a look at those results. But I don't, uh, in order for my argument to stand, I don't actually need to see the results because the work of the rate committee at ICR uh, back from 80, I was briefly part of that effort about HALOs, um, the work of, uh, of people like Larry Vardaman and others over the years, there's a clear bias. As a matter of fact, ICR went to a lot of trouble to set up, um, I don't know what to be called, uh, shadow corporations to send their results off to radi radiometric labs, radiometric dating labs, to get the results they reported. So the very idea that there's bias by somebody that looks at Vesuvius and gets the date. I'm not going to argue that. Next. Okay, final super chat that has come in for this debate, this much anticipated debate, I'll say, is from Thunderstorm. $5 super chat. And um, okay, so this questioner says, this might be off topic. I was interested in the panel's opinion on Dr. Dennis Stanford's Solutrian hypothesis, if you gentlemen are familiar with that. Uh, spell the word that begins with the letter T. Um, so, Solutrian. So it's S-O-L-U-T-R-E-A-N. I think it's a misspelling of the TV show Soul Train from when I was a boy. I don't have any comment. Um, it looks like it's, it, it is pretty off topic. It looks like it has to do with human migration and, you know, it, it might be better saved for, for another uh, debate. And Kaz, I'll hand it over to you. Uh, I'd like to so say goodbye to uh, King by complimenting him on uh, – our debate tonight. Can I do that before I leave the studio? Oh, of course. King, I very yeah. much appreciate the um, professionalism in your comments. And I look forward. I hope we can agree that perhaps in January, we could uh, go to another topic like uh, uh, mammography or something. It's certainly something to consider. And uh, thank you for joining me, David. Uh, even though your name is all lowercase, you'll, you'll always be uppercase David to me. Well, you're <laughs> now that's, uh, that is what my kindergarten wife would call a cute comment. So I'll, I will take that as a compliment. But, but seriously, one topic that we could go on, you and me, is uh, in January, why don't we uh, look at statistics more carefully, you and me together, with the references that you've given me. And then let's pick up on this topic of catastrophic uh, plate tectonics. I enjoy defending my old friend, Dr. Baum Baumgartner, 
Does that sound like a reasonable idea for the future? We'll see about the plate tectonics. I can't give any promises on that because, you know, the radiometric dating thing, it, it has uh, its basis in fundamental physics, which is sort of my wheelhouse and something I can talk about intelligently. But I, I, I can definitely see us talking about statistics in greater detail because that is yeah, something. Yeah, I would, I would like that. Um, thank you so much, uh, uh, Kaz, for such a good job in being a... Uh, um, in being a... Uh, co-host i'll ask god's blessing on the four of you and donnie i'm out of here i'm going to hit the x button okay david right, mcqueen thank, you so, thank much. you so much thank you all right have a good one thank you thank you sir I'll, one more uh, chat did come in at the last second uh from samir farsane uh <clears throat> do you want to take it real quick king Crocodile? um sure are we still live Yes, we are still live. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, there will be no more super chats, ladies and gentlemen. Please do not send any more. I cannot guarantee that they will be read. Uh, uh, one thing from Pure Aussie Gold did say that uh, loves Professor McQueen, always a gentleman. So thank you so much, Pure Aussie Gold, for that. And uh, Samir Farsane's uh, question was: Considering evolution and the number of species, we should have a new species every 68 years. Name a few from the last 200 years or evolution till a nap. Yeah, sure. Um... What are they called? Are they are they Encinatas or Encinatas? I think Encinatas, uh, that ring species, uh, the one that uh, migrated around in like kind of a horseshoe uh, trajectory, and then the 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 uh, initial one that 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 started the migration was no longer able to to breed with the new one. That that, that would be an example of a speciation event. There's a whole list of speciation events. Uh, you you could you could just Google it and and you'll find a whole list. <clears throat> All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Standing for truth. Do you want to say a couple words before I uh, take us out of here? Yeah. Last words will be thank you so much uh, to King Crocoduck and David McQueen, who's not here anymore. But thanks so much for an awesome debate. I know we scheduled this and it's been in the works for you know a few months. A lot of people have been looking forward to it. And I, and I definitely didn't disappoint. It was technical. It was thorough. Uh, Kaz, thank you so much for uh, you know hosting and, and moderating this. And as always, it's a privilege to be here on Modern Day Debate. James Coons is doing a fantastic job. I see uh, Mark Reed in the chat. Uh, this Tuesday, he will be debating uh, Ken Hoven over on my channel. Is there reasonable evidence for evolution? So that should be a pretty epic showdown. And again, uh, to the audience, thanks for tuning in uh, tonight. Lots of great questions and uh, just a really good debate. So thanks so much. All right. Thank you so much. And King Crocodile, do you want to say last couple words? Um, yeah, subscribe to me. And yes, uh, nor normally I say something vulgar after that, but I don't want to demonetize <laughs> okay. you guys. So yeah, have a good one. Ciao. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And then once again, ladies and gentlemen, just want to remind you again about DebateCon 2 coming up on November 19th in Plano, Texas. That's a Saturday. Get your tickets while they're still hot. Link in the description below. Tomorrow night, once again, Matt Dillahunty will be taking on David to be debating whether or not gambling should be illegal so subscribe like it if you love it share it if you want to spread it subscribe do all the good stuff and we have many more debates coming your way our uh, speakers are linked in the description below so if you liked what you heard tonight check them out do it now thank you so much everyone thank you to donnie from standing for truth ministries for helping me out tonight thank you to uh the moderators in the chat thank you to james for creating this platform uh and thank you to everybody who elevated the conversation and the discourse so once again and the debaters, of course, who are the lifeblood of the show. How could I forget? So everybody have a great night. And remember, keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable.
Have a great night. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.